where the waters are shallow and the conversations are deep. Each week on the show, we explore the unknown knowns, the fringes of science and culture, the borderlands between truth and possibility. If you happen to be in South Florida, you might be listening to this show live at 6 p.m. on Saturdays on Keys Talk 96.9 or 102.5 FM. If so, please note that every episode is also uploaded afterwards to mattasher.com and available on our podcast feed. My guest today has written a book which will be out in a couple days. This is a different kind of show, though I do find myself saying that a lot. I am in studio with this person, and normally when I do these things, I give the guest a short introduction, but In this case, I'm going to let the guest introduce himself, just to note that his book is called Personal Effects, What Recovering the Dead Teaches Me About Caring for the Living. Who are you and what do you do? Hi, Matt. My name is Robert and soon to be retired (laughs) and do very little then. Um, If you're asking about what I've done... I've had a probably a different life, and it's a little bit hard to explain. The, the easiest way, I guess, is I go to mass fatalities. People hire me in, or in the Army or law enforcement to go to disaster scenes, but not typical disasters, ones that typically take a large number of human life. I've been to two events in my lifetime that killed a quarter of a million people. The, um, Haitian earthquake in 2010 and the Boxing Day tsunami, which occurred in 2004 at the end. So I go to try to help, what I say is bring order to chaos. To We, we can't undo the event. We can't make it better for people. We can try to preserve the dignity of the deceased by making sure they have a name and that they return to their family members. And we can try to help the families by not making it worse. But we can't undo it because we can't bring back the dead or an injure people. So in a nutshell, that's what I do. So you are showing up after an event has happened, but not after the action is over. Well, there's, a, there's phases. And so what I kind of summarize what we do is consequence management. And events occurred, a uh, bombing or a plane crash, a boat sinking, uh, a nightclub fire, any of these things that... that result in a number of fatalities and so there's a period where life-saving has stopped for the most part now natural disasters that may go on for a little bit longer but life-saving has stopped and now we're to the phase of okay now we have to deal with the consequences you can call life-saving consequence but that's immediate that's that's a triage that's who's ever there we're doing everything we can to save somebody's lives that's not the area we focus on we come in immediately after that when we're not looking for the living anymore we're we're trying to recover the dead, their personal belongings, work with the system to establish their positive identification, and then return them to the families and along with their personal effects and help the family transition. I don't, you know, a lot of some people use the word closure. I don't use the word closure. To me, it's about a transition. And I equate it this way, is that every day we have a highway you drive down to your life. It's, you have routines, you have patterns, you have holidays that come up, family you see, and all of a sudden you're on this, this routine road and it collapses in front of you. Just it's a big chasm. And now you're, you're slammed on the brakes. You've stopped. Because life for many of the, the family members and survivors doesn't just start again because it's going to be different. And there's a period of what I call bridge building. So people like us we have the plans, we have the tools to build a bridge so that person can transition to the other side of what's going to be the new normal. Now, for that to happen, we'd like to be able to make sure there's a loved one returned. And, you know, unlike CSI on TV, that's not always the case. And sometimes it's not a single person returned. There are multiple fragments because of the type of events we go to. And uh, just a note for the audience, uh, I probably should have said this at the beginning, but there will be some descriptions here, undoubtedly. Uh, so be advised that this might get into some dark territory here. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I, well, I, I try to always, I, and, and how I answer questions and how I try to do stuff is, I always imagine, what if you're not an interviewer, but what if you're a family member? Or if a family member were watching me, 
would they be thinking, oh my gosh, you know, this guy is horrible. I don't want him anywhere near me or wow, this is the information I need and, and they're, they're doing this the right way. So these are the same words I use with family members. Um, and so I'm always very careful to Right. And a lot of the time what those family members are are looking for is a body. I want to touch on that um, in a somewhat deep way here because it seems that bodies are very important. My very first uh, guest on the radio version of this show talked uh, about a story in which a cave diver found a body that had been at the bottom of a hole. A diver, another diver, had gone down. It was about 800, 900 feet. He failed to come back up. Uh, this is His name is Dion. And so this group of technical driver, divers, they noticed the body. They spoke to the family of that person. They organized a rescue of the diver, and someone else died in the recovery of that body. Now, Partly the decision to go down that deep was made out of a certain probably bravado and wondering if this was even a possible thing to do, but it was also made because when the person contacted the family uh, who had lost their son eight years prior at the bottom of this very deep hole, they were ecstatic about the idea of the body coming back. It was deeply meaningful to them even though they knew their son was already dead. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you think that importance is of the body. Uh, yeah, for every family's different. And when you manage a mass fatality, it's looking at a forest, but knowing each tree is different and each tree will need some different care and trying to make sure that what you do for one doesn't negatively impact or hurt another because it's not about a thousand deceased. It's about one person times a thousand different families. And for most families, having a deceased is a sense of finality. It is a sense that I can clean out my closet and know that my husband isn't going to feel like, well, let me rephrase that. So in my case, if, if I disappear, what can my husband do? He can't plan a funeral because most places, you know, you, you need to have immortal remains. And it's not just the physical presence, it's the mental acceptance. I have got on a plane. I just didn't come home. So am I going to walk through the door in six months? Am I going to walk through the door in a month? If he's cleaned out the closet, is he then giving up on me? Is he saying this? So with a body, a body forces acceptance. A body forces decisions for families because they have to make decisions about funerals. They have to make decisions with the coroner or medical examiner for disposition. So it's that sense of this has really occurred with the sense of, the finality. It's, there, there is no question that the loss has occurred. When there's not a human remains, logically you can look at a plane and say, well, no one survived. But we're not talking logic here. We're talking logic and emotion. And so you have to put yourself in the, the shoes of the person who's lost someone and said, okay, you're not accepting this, and, and that's your right. So how do I help explain it or make it more concrete for you and the way to do this for most people is with the human remains so i i certainly see that there might be these kind of legal and other processes that get kicked off by actually having a death certificate in a body though as you kind of alluded to there there's a there's another piece to this as well there are situations like the one i described of the you know of the diver who had died or others where it's indisputable that people had died i i find this interesting in part because um my my grandmother was on a ship to the galapagos islands uh i was 17 at the time that ship exploded, maybe a boiler explosion, unknown. Uh, Nobody was recovered from that, as far as I know. But 
I never felt the need to see the body in order to get the closure or to feel like I could put it behind me. I, I grieved just as anyone would for their, you know, for their grandmother. But there wasn't any aspect where I needed a, a place for those remains to be or to see that that person has died to, to kind of move on, so to speak. I, I know, um, you know, closure is not something that you want to, or a lot of people want to talk about as a thing, but I didn't feel like having seen the body would have given me anything more than what I already knew about what happened. So I'm wondering if you could speculate more about what it is about the body itself that's so compelling to people. Yeah, well, uh, first of all, I'm sorry, that's a still a traumatic thing when you're 17. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not actually seeing the body. Many people don't view the deceased. It's the idea of there's an action. I've made a final action. I've taken a casket that the system has, has returned to me with my loved one. I'm having a funeral, which is a ceremony that marks a passing, a transition. The death certificate is not just a legal document. The death certificate is a the death certificate is a is an acknowledgement that this person lived in the world and now has passed. And for people, it's those concrete steps that help, and from what I've seen, that help people make that transition from what was normal to what will be normal. Now, it is different for for many people. It's different based on where they sit in the family circle. It's different for how certain religions and cultures. For example, in Asia, in the tsunami, one of the big challenges was that we had, you know, in Thailand, over 5,000 foreigners were deceased. Now, in Thailand, there's no funeral homes. There's not morgues that we're used to because bodies are taken and cremated because to keep them is to invite bad spirits. And I wouldn't call that Robert. That's a body. If I call it Robert, I've invited, you know, my spirits to stay. But in Europe, where the, many of these people were from, families wanted their loved ones back. That's not a body. That's Robert. And so you have to, as you go through these events, understand the culture where the events occurred, the culture of the deceased to meet the, the rights of the deceased, and then the culture of the family members who may be different. And in the book, I I try to explain a little bit or talk about some different examples because this is it. There's not one size fits all. And the goal is to meet everyone's needs because the hardest thing in a mass fatality for families is we don't want a family to become into the system, a number in the system. Death is a personal thing. It's supposed to be a personal a personal journey. It's supposed to be something that a family deals with in a way that's most comfortable for them. When we have a plane crash or a boat sinking, it becomes impersonal. I'm talking with Robert Jensen about his book, Personal Effects, and we're talking about dealing with the bodies that result from mass fatalities, mass casualties, and we're talking about the importance of the body and bodies and every place, as you mentioned, has a different custom for dealing with their dead. And that I'm sure causes challenges for you as you try to respect the the customs of the place. It seems like you have your own customs as well that you've developed in this business. I thought it was interesting that you mentioned that you try whenever possible to bring the dead out if you're bringing them out on a stretcher feet first. Um, yeah, this is how we walked in life, so this is how we'll take our final steps if we can. Everything is about trying to, again, make this, this is a person, it's not a thing, it's not and, and if you're in the business long enough and you've done this long enough, you see people who become jaded's not the right word, but it's it's just another body. It's just another call. It's just another event. And you don't want to do that because then to the families, that's what they see. And no matter if it's your first or your last event, you're taking care of someone's loved one. And what 
is the worst thing that can ever happen to somebody. It's that they lose somebody suddenly and unexpectedly. And unfortunately, a lot of the events we go to, these aren't people who were all, you know, on the, what I call me, the more life experience because I'm older. We deal with people young. We deal with people middle-aged. We deal with people who no one expected to go. And so, again, when you, you have the families there, it's about, I can't make it better. So what I want to do is not make it worse. That extends, interestingly, you mentioned in your book, even to people who may not have been so great in life. You, I don't have the exact quote in front of me here, but you say something about uh, even you know even criminals deserve a, a proper treatment in, in death. Yeah, I am. Um, you know, and when I was a deputy sheriff, you get in a pursuit, and you know the pursuit would end because you you tackle the person or you catch the guy. There's a lot of adrenaline, but once you've arrested someone, then it's it's done. You don't you don't need to use force because they're contained. A person who is heinous, a mass murderer, Osama bin Laden, Adolf Hitler, um, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer, any of these, these people who've taken a large number of lives or even one life, the, if once punishment's been carried out, the person's been hung or executed or, or killed, the punishment's over, they're done. They've paid, they've paid the price for what they've done. And so to abuse a body or to mistreat a body then does what? It doesn't affect the dead person. They're dead. They don't care. All you're doing is affecting the living people. And some of the living people who may have been on the fence about whether this person did or not was deserved to die are now going to be, oh, my gosh, look at the way they treated this, this body. There's, to me, no value. There's only a negative in it. And, and I take from... Um, Albert Pierpoint, who was um, England's last hangman, and um, and he executed, I think, what close to 200 Nazi war criminals and, and maybe 600 people in his life as as an executioner in the in the UK. And it was one of the philosophies he had. That, you know, when you the person is hung, they've paid their price. There, it's a human remains. Don't have to have a ceremony, don't have to do anything else, but you don't treat them less than you treat others. For my own part, I think I'm agnostic to uh, what happens to bodies after they're dead, whether they were good people or ones society considers to be absolutely heinous. I will just note that your perspective is not the perspective that a large number of people throughout history have taken. Again, that's not a judgment, good or bad, but throughout history, bodies have been political weapons. They have been ways to show that that person not just deserved to die, but deserved to be deprived of respect even in death. Well, of course, you can look at the, you know, the, the way, you know, in, in what, 1600s in the UK for pirates, the way they're, you know, they were hung from the bridges or the drawing and quartering. And um, I'd like to think those were societies that were developing and, and learning. And I think that in a more enlightened society or modern society, we've learned that it's the ramifications, again, aren't on the person who's deceased. It's the ramifications for the living. And anything we can do to stop people from me having to work is a good thing. I, I would be happy to never have another you know, event to go to. They're, they're not fun, they're not good. You go to an event and you know that you'll come home, you'll do your job and go home, but you know that for all the family members and the survivors, and large number of the responders, it's not going to be the same. And so anything we can do to minimize those, we can't prevent bad people. Terrorism is going to occur. People are going to do crimes. There's, there's no way for the system to be 100% successful because we're humans. We make mistakes. We will design things safely, but we're people. So we'll make mistakes, and Mother Nature is going to be Mother Nature. So you're not going to stop hurricanes and fires and earthquakes and volcanoes. So we're going to continue to have events, but that doesn't mean we have to help create more. 
We are almost up against a break here. When we come back, I want to touch on Osama bin Laden. You mentioned him briefly and then also talk a little bit about anger and our response, uh, our angry response often to these kind of tragedies. We'll be right back here on Keys Talk FM. Welcome back to the Matt Asher Show. I am talking today with Robert A. Jensen. He is the author of Personal Effects, What Recovering the Dead Teaches Me About Caring for the Living. I got a chance to read this as an advanced copy. It's a fascinating book, a a dark but fascinating subject. And we left off, we were talking uh, about the treatment of the dead, even the dead who have done terrible things. I think that certainly includes Osama bin Laden. He did not get a a burial according to the tradition of his culture. He was uh, apparently sewn up into a bag and, and dumped at sea. The reason given for that was to not have a single place where people could go and turn that kind of place into some kind of point of convergence for terrorism. Was that the, the well, thinking? Well, I think I, th- I think that the U.S. government did not want to create a shrine, did not want to create a place for martyrdom, or uh, you know, it's it's kind of like if you look in Germany, where old Nazi buildings are out of Hitler's birthplace, the government's controlled very tightly to make sure that that fanatics, right wing people don't converge on those locations. And so I think the thinking for the disposition of Osama bin Laden's body was the same. If we return him to Afghanistan, then he becomes a shrine. And does his family in Saudi want him? Where do you put him? I was not part of that decision. I simply say that, again, he's dead. What you do with him doesn't affect him. But there are lots of people in the world who are very devout Muslim. There are family members in his family who are both very pro-U.S. government and some that are not. It is can be an affront to the living. So if we punish the person who's responsible, then we don't need to punish the people who aren't responsible. And it's not a... I mean, it's a strong opinion for me. It's just one that I always try to remind people that... What we're doing isn't for the deceased. They don't care. They're dead. What you're doing when you do these events is trying to focus on the living. I think that a lot of our reaction to the dead in a case like that is probably driven by anger towards them that does not go away uh, after their death, just as the deaths of the their victims, that doesn't go away. That fact is not eliminated by the the death of Osama bin Laden, for example. Um, I'd imagine that in any of these uh, mass casualties that you come into, there's a, a huge amount of anger on the ground floating in the air. And then I also would imagine that on a personal level, even you know, even if this is a, a complete accident, so to speak, that there are ways that people are being treated or things that are being done that cause your own levels of anger to spike. I'm wondering what your relationship is to the anger that's out there after one of these events, both on the ground and as you perhaps feel it bubbling up in yourself as a reaction to the things that are done. Well, so so two very good questions. And I, I think I tried to answer them in the book. And the first point about a person's anger about the event is the reality for a lot of people, because you take accidents, People know accidents occur. And a lot of the anger isn't so much about what's occurred because you can't undo it. It's about the response. And and this is what I tell CEOs and, and business leaders and government people, because governments have reputations, governments have value, is that you're showing up to an event to try to talk about something that's occurred as if that's the focus. And the focus for the people who are at the event, they know what's occurred, their loved one's dead. What their focus is, now what happens to me? 
Because I didn't have this class in high school that says, what do I do when my loved one is killed in a bombing? I, I don't know what to, you know, what are the next steps? How do I plan funerals? What's the ramifications? How do I do the all the legal documents? I'm a 19-year-old man, and I have a 17-year-old brother. I'm now the parent. How do I do that? I had a family member in a crash come up to me once, and she said, you know, I have to go home now, and I have to tell my husband that we don't have two kids. We have um, four or five kids. And I've got to tell my nieces that their mother and father aren't coming home. That's a practical need. Talking about the loss doesn't help solve that need for that family. So we see a lot of anger that we don't need to see because people that are responding are trying to focus on something that's occurred and the people who are there are trying to focus on how do I go forward. So what we try to do is help people navigate that and help the companies understand this is why it's so important as a CEO or a government official. The first thing you say is you're sorry. But we have people who think that that's an admission of guilt, and that makes liability. When it doesn't, it reduces liability. Litigation is an extension of rage. It, it, we all have an economic value. That's actually not very subjective. Two accountants can look at 10 different people and pretty much come up with the same economic value, not to be cold. And so the insurance, the payments, are to replace that economic value to the people who are directly affected. But if I'm so angry because you're not even helping me. And my first call wasn't to a lawyer. My first call was to you, CEO or government leader. Help me because I'm alive. I'm here. So there's a lot of frustration with people in the response. And that's why we saw the change in the laws in the U.S. from the Aviation Family Assistance Act in 1996. It started back in 1994. And that's one of the things we really work on at Incidence is helping companies not try to defuse the bomb that's just blown up but go forward as somebody who's giving help. And companies who do that, you look at their stock performance, they do well because they're not judged on the event, they're judged on the response. As to my own anger, um, I, I, you know, I'm one of these, I've had a very different life than, I mean, I guess everyone says that, but. Um, I, I think you, you qualify <laughs> as, uh, as very far out on the edge in terms of people who have had different kind of lives. And I say that as someone who thinks I'm already far on the edge, but I think you're two or three standard deviations past where I am even. I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm sure I am, and it's probably harder on my family than it is on me. But um, So I don't necessarily look at things the same way other people do. Things that bother most people don't bother me. Things that bother me probably don't bother most people. And so um, anger serves me no purpose. It serves no value. It's a wasted emotion. I get frustrated and I get tired when I have to say the same things over and over, but then I have to remind myself that this is my, you know, 30th plane crash. This is the local sheriff and mayor's first. And I then remind myself that I don't think people wake up when they're responding to do a bad job to hurt somebody. I think people circle the wagons because they're afraid. They're petrified. Death scares everyone because it reminds us of our own mortality. It, they think about what if that had been their family. They, you know, the CEOs can move millions of dollars a day, but ask them to talk to 400 family members, and they'll they'll panic. They'll freeze. After 9-11, working with companies to make decisions on when they could fill vacancies was, was horrible because they just couldn't get over the fact that the chair in the room they were talking about was somebody they knew. So when can I replace this person? How do I go? Well, there's a system that's worked that says, here's some of the things you want to consider because this is what's worked for people. Um, so, yes, I get very frustrated at times. and I, I but, th but you don't have, anger doesn't bubble up within you. You acknowledge that it's not a useful emotion and that's enough to kind of keep it at bay? Uh, yeah, it's, it's what it is. I've been, you know, I, God, I was in Iraq and, um, a, in a building. We were going over mass graves and um, somebody lobbed a you know, 155 shell. And shook the whole building, and, and the guys I were with jumped up and ran to the hallway. And I'm like, oh, "It's one round. Where are you going? Let's let's finish the map." And he looked at me and said, "Well, I guess somebody trying to kill me is a new experience, but for you, clearly not." And I said, "Yeah, most people who meet me want to kill me, but um, 
No, it's just there, there are certain things that I don't try to get too wrapped up about. The, you mentioned, uh, and I'm talking with Robert Jensen uh, about his book, Personal Effects. His job uh, involves or involved, I guess he's close to retirement here, going in after a, a mass casualty, some kind of disaster, and recovering both the bodies and the artifacts, the uh, personal effects of, uh, of, of the dead for their family members. And you've been in a lot of dangerous places throughout this. These kinds of scenes can be chaotic. One of the dangers that people don't think of, well, or at least I hadn't thought of very much in terms of recovering the bodies beyond just the fact that they're decomposing and probably vectors for disease is that sometimes the bodies themselves can be physically dangerous to you. You mentioned unexploded ordnance inside the body of someone who's who's dead. Tell, what does that mean? Well, so, so a couple things. One thing I, I, I want to catch is the dead are not a threat after a disaster, and a lot of people will use that to justify mass burials because they think about disease, and most diseases require a living organism to to do it. So um, I, I don't want people to, to rush off because that's a big battle we have after disasters is let's well, just bury the dead. Well, yeah, but <laughs> we're not meeting the needs of the families. The um, the ordinance comment is when I was in the Army, we always, in the mortuary affairs, we always had x-ray machines because, you know, and obviously explosives and ordnance couldn't be trapped in the human remains. And you certainly don't want to be doing an autopsy or preparing the deceased and having missed something that can still damage or kill more people. So you do have to always be cognizant when you're at certain types of scenes, either war zones, combat zones, or, or bombings, to make sure that there's no live explosives present in, a, in the deceased. Yeah, I would imagine that uh, that you do have to be extremely careful in how you handle them in general for for that reason and for for others. You you mentioned we've mentioned that you try to observe the different customs wherever you are. How do you go about kind of beginning to understand what those are and then trying to take that into account? So when we have an event that we're going to, the first thing we do is kind of an intelligence brief. What's the political situation? What's the cultural situation? What are the predominant um, religions and cultural norms? And then if it's something like a plane or tourist, who might be visiting and what are their needs? You just kind of build up a briefing. There's tons of good books and references that we use. Um, and so we, we do a quick assessment. Uh, History is really important to understand, very important to understand when it comes to dealing with culture. And unfortunately, a lot of people I don't think like history or don't bother to look at history or don't understand it. And when they're responding, they become very focused on their needs. I, in the Bali bombings, for example, um, some countries hire us, some countries don't. You know, people have their own systems, don't care. I, I don't really care who does it as long as somebody's responsible. And um, uh, one of the, the governments, uh, some of the ambassadors had come up to me and said, um, because it, when I, Kenyan, I was not only the CEO, and uh, my husband and I own the company, so the buck stops with me, and I'm physically on scene, so you don't have to you know, go through this bureaucracy. You just come right up to me, and you're, you're talking to the person who can make the decision. And um, he said, you know, we know that you know, we're not using your company, but you don't have to, to buy all the trucks, so there's no one for us to use. I said, well, that's not how we work. I, you know, I have a company that we've hired for us. There's lots of other companies, but did you take your, you know, your, I call it a monk, um, did you take your your spiritual leader, your monk, with you? And he goes, no, we're not. You know, we're not. We don't practice that form of Buddhism. And I said, yes, but you're you're not in Scandinavia, Europe. You're in <laughs> you're in Indonesia, which is a large Muslim country, but you're in Bali, which is kind of separate. And so, if I go to a guy and I want to ask him if I can put a, a deceased in his truck, and I don't have someone there to make sure it's okay to talk about the dead. I'm just, man, that's bad juju. There's bad spirits that are now going to be there for him. He's not going to want to even talk to you. You do a presentation in China on death. The first thing you must do is say, is this a safe space to talk about death? Because if not, I'm inviting death. Give somebody a clock. 
well, you've just sentenced them to, you know, to, to watch the clock. That, that, that could be their time. It's hugely important to understand that. And because, again, I'm not dealing with my beliefs or my systems. They don't matter. It's not about me. What I think or care for or matter doesn't, doesn't matter. Right. You have to deal with the conditions on the ground. Uh, I, based on, on your book and our conversation, it's clear that a, a lot of your job is about being tactful. It's about being diplomatic. It's about um, you know being conciliatory to the extent that you can and still getting your job done. Um, being diplomatic is hard. And, and for me, yes. I would imagine it's hard for everybody to do that. I actually want to, when we come back here, I want to ask you about one of the things in the book, actually an interesting omission, it seemed like to me, that perhaps was done in the name of a particular kind of diplomacy, but we'll have to get to that right after the break. To the Matt Asher radio show. I am talking with Robert Jensen. He is the author of a book that is about to be released called Personal Effects, What Recovering the Dead Teaches Me About Caring for the Living. Part of Robert's job involves traveling all over the world where some kind of mass casualty event has happened and then dealing with various different organizations, institutions, governments, people, and so a lot of the job involves having a high level of tact when you do that, of diplomacy. Uh, I think reading through your book, there was one moment, though, where that perhaps that tact looked a bit stingy. I know among the establishment class that saying anything positive about the previous administration, the Trump administration is taboo, but I did find it odd that you seem to deliberately avoid naming Trump as the driver of what you called the brief thaw in U.S.-North Korean relations, which was what allowed for the uh, repatriation of dead U.S. soldiers from that country. So I wanted to give you a chance to say why you avoided mentioning his name at that point and if there's a part to this story that the public may have missed. Well, there's two answers. The one's the really practical book editing comment is that if you put too much that's topical for a very specific time, your editor cuts it out because then the book becomes, what, what's the word they use, dated. So I think there's a few things I was able to slip past my editor, but he's, he was pretty pretty good with the red pen. Um, the second one is Korea is, um, when you look at the way we as a country, we as the United States and, and other countries are really starting to pick this up right now, and there's, there's some really great stories, but maybe too long for the show, on the recovery of the, the war dead, prior conflict, I guess is an easier term to, to classify that. And um, I commanded the Army's only mortuary unit way back when in 1995, you know, seems like a lifetime ago when I went to Bosnia in 95 and, and Haiti and when we invaded Haiti. And uh, when leaving that, I was going to actually, instead of going to the assignment I did go to, I was going to go up to D.C. and work on the Korean cell because we had, Korea was the last time we used temporary cemeteries. World War II in Korea, we actually had temporary cemeteries the Army used. And after that, we said, no, let's get everyone home. Because in World War II, families were offered the choice to have their loved ones. Temporary cemeteries meaning For the military, in in, in war zones, in combat, yeah. In the zone itself. Mm -hmm. In in the conflict zone, or, you know, obviously removed from the front line. And the end of World War II, a lot of families wanted their loved ones brought back. A lot also said, let's leave them, you know, where they fell. And so there's half and half. But... Korea being not an open country, the goal was we should get everyone home. And so there have been lots of periods with lots of presidents that have opened Korea up. I don't think the former president actually did anything to that allowed North Korea to do anything different than it had been doing or not doing. So I, I, where success is due, I'm happy to give success. But I actually think some of the behavior hurt the relations because it allowed the 
the repatriation remains, which had been occurring very quietly on and off for many years, to become politicized. And that I don't like because then it could be held. And, and I really get frustrated when remains can be held for political purposes. Um, and did you think that was happening? Well, yes, I think that North Korea does use the return of the service members as, as political. I think it could be a much easier process, but it's it's a government that's very hard to understand. And for the families of the prior conflict soldiers, even our own government can be a challenge. There's a lawsuit now for the first Medal of Honor winner for World War II and for the family of the um, only general officer to have been executed by the Japanese during World War II in Kanabatan prison camp in the Philippines because families believe they know where their loved ones are and they want them returned where the, the Department of Defense office responsible says, no, we have our processes and our procedures and we don't agree with your findings. And it's working its way through the courts um, because it's, you know, this is what I'm saying, that, that for families, the return of the loved ones is very significant. And just be told no when there's not a logical reason or to have it politicized. I had a crash we did several years ago for a flight coming from Paris to Egypt. And the French government's response is that this clearly was a maintenance issue. And the Egyptian government response is no, we believe there was a bomb put on the plane in, in Paris. Both are possible. You let the facts determine the, the cause, not the government. And the deceased were being held in an inordinate amount of period of time by the, the government. And so I actually wrote a letter to the president of, of the Egypt and said, look, this is not, I, I know in your culture this is not something that would be done, and I, and I don't believe you're doing it to hurt people, but there's no forensically based or legal reason to delay the the release of the deceit. Now, what if for me to presidents like, you know, who cares, who am I? But I did make sure that the um, the French and Canadians, who both have um, ambassadors that are very focused on disasters and protecting their citizens, were CC'd on this letter, and within a week the deceased got released. Now, <laughs> so, so that that may have very well worked. It's the the use of of bodies is a political. For political ends, it's, it's very interesting. There's a lot about that that I hadn't thought about until I read your book. The comment that you had about um, there in the book about how the the British Empire, in particular, when their citizens died overseas, they were to be buried exactly where it is. I think that's very interesting. The idea being, perhaps, to put myself in the mentality back then that the British Empire really was, you know, from from one end of the globe to the other. And so if someone died in some far-flung part of the world, that was still England because England was an empire and it was an empire with outposts everywhere. And so the dead, in effect, became kind of like colonists even even after they were yeah, so our claim to corpse our claim to that land exactly right which i think is very interesting though i don't know whether there's a way to avoid that by doing the reverse whatever decision you make with a body i imagine that some decisions are more politically explicit than others but there is probably always some sort of implied philosophy behind that whether you bring them home home being you know the island of england or whether you keep them at home you know in in you know in africa or wherever they they were when they died there is a political dimension to that yeah but it's an easy one to solve ask the family it's not hard. Ask the family. Give the family the choice. And if you can do it logistically. Now, and, you know, embalming wasn't something that was really focused or a skill or an art or a, an industry till the American Civil War in the United States, for example. And then because of the cost, it was limited to people who could afford it. But after that, it certainly became much more common. Um, so it, it, at this point in time, it's an easy it's an easy question there's not a right or a wrong answer the only wrong answer is not asking the question so you mentioned that logistically things obviously things have to be practical a lot of the scenes that you arrive on there's a limit to how much you can do there's a limit um to you know to how many 
how much time you're going to spend collecting those fragments, what size, at what point is the size so small that it's it's not relevant or not financially viable to keep going, right? Everything has trade-offs. Well, when you're, you're dealing with a deceased that's fragmented and that might be a high-speed impact, a bomb, um, nothing is too small. You process the scene to collect all human remains for legal reasons, to identify who's involved, to separate because if you're going to have a mass grave, you certainly don't want to inter the person who caused the event in an intentional, like the German wings crash or a bombing. You don't want to put the remains of the, the bomber or the hijacker with the other people. So you're going to do DNA. Even if you can't make a positive identification, you can do exclusion. And for some religions, it's incredibly important that as much of the body can be recovered. So you recover as much as you can. The fiscal constraint, it's a cost of doing business. It's a cost of having that risk. Um, and so I think what people have learned is the greater cost is when you don't do it, because now we're into the litigation, we're into the rage, and the amount of money that goes to a, a family doesn't really change, going back to that value, but the cost to get there becomes much higher. Though, I mean, there is always the that aspect of, of trade-offs, right? Going back to the uh, thing I talked about in the very first segment about my grandmother who was on a, a ship that uh, blew up outside the Galapagos Islands. I, I expect that some amount of effort was spent looking for the remains and trying to figure out exactly what happened because I don't think that we know even today. But at the same time, I would feel actually very bad if people were today, 30 years later, still, you know, still looking in the seas there to try to recover some minuscule whatever it was that was either related to the ship or the people who were on it. At at some point, life goes on. But that's your thoughts. And there might be someone seen on the other side of the table who life didn't go on for them. And I've had family members that I know from talking with them that life didn't go on. It just didn't go forward. It just stopped. And that's really sad to see. Um, and I had one case where a young man flying from Mexico to Seattle um, called his mom, said, hey, I got on the plane. Because she, she told me the story. And she said, you know, then I, I came home from work. I had a headache. I laid down. I woke up. I turned on the TV. And... I saw in the news that my son's plane had crashed. So it went from my son's plane has crashed, which is, is an acknowledgement, that's a purposeful statement, to now, but maybe he swam to Anacap Island or one of the islands off the southern coast of California. Okay, that's not logical, but, you know, there there are people who survive falling out of planes. There are, you know, the um, the the Chilean rugby team that's or the Uruguayan rugby team mm -hmm. that, that survived for what sixty seven days. That was the alive story, yeah. right? Yeah. And that was sixty seven days that they survived. Um, and so there are cases, so you don't want to just discount it, you want to look at the facts. Everything's about facts. Okay. So in this case, based on the way that the radar pattern shows the descent of the craft, the impact with the sea, they're they're not going to be survivors. So, in this case, he was one of the people that was not recovered or identified, and not through any lack of effort by the authorities or the government or any limitations on cost, just the dynamics of the impact. So for her, it went from my son was on the plane to no, he's alive. So I'm not unpacking anything in this room, I'm not moving this truck out of the driveway, I'm waiting for him to walk through that door. And that was her reality, was that he was going to walk through the door, and that's what she was going to wait for. Now, logically, you can sit and say, well, we did a proof of life. People said he got on the airplane. There's no, you know, his luggage was recovered. There's nothing to show he didn't get on the airplane. Yeah, it's it's got to be hard um, for people in that circumstance to uh, to kind of come to grips with what is almost certainly reality, though I suppose there's always that tiny sliver 
of a of a hope and of course in a lot of these events it was the opposite that happened in terms of being extremely unlucky we are out of time here on the radio portion of the show are you okay to stick around for a little bit on the podcast only part sure excellent Welcome to the Matt Asher Radio Show After Party, otherwise known as the Filter Podcast. I'm going to pick right back where we left off with Robert Jensen, and we're talking about luck, both bad and good. Do you have any lucky totems that you carry around with you or little rituals for good luck that you have? I I don't know if I have totems. I have things that my husband has given me that are sentimental or, or special that I always have, like you know, I have this watch that I, I wear, I think, at almost every interview. Um, on Vegas, I, I think I found a lucky a penny that I considered luck because I was having good luck in the machine, so I, I think I kept it for the entire trip. Um, but no, I'm not a, um, I don't really think of, you know, totems or, or luck. Um, There's a thin line, though, sometimes between, I don't know, um, totems and rituals and practices uh, thinking back to what we were talking about earlier with bringing the you know the dead out of a building say feet first that does that fall somewhere on that spectrum no i think that's just a um i i don't i, I guess i'd call it a respect thing it's just it's a it's this is a person it's not a thing and so um, it's a way of reminding you of what you're dealing with it's, it's and, and everyone mm-hmm. involved that this person is coming we're bringing them out of the building i kind of like in some cases we've had at funerals where we've had uh, a hearse stop at someone's home so they can make one last trip home mm-hmm. you know, because of the, the kids or someone mm-hmm. else you know mom can come home one more time it's all about the significance to the the people. symbolism, right? I mean, so much of what we do as human beings has multiple levels of, of meaning and import, and the symbolic level of our lives is, is very important. I think that's probably true for everybody, no, even if they don't think so. Uh, yeah, I, I'd be hard-pressed to think of a group or a culture that doesn't have some type of ritual or symbols that they follow or that have meaning. One of the things that seems to happen culturally or in the decline of empires is those symbols begin to break down or the symbols that were universal symbols of good or bad start to shade one way or the other as people polarize around different symbols. Yeah, polarization is never a good thing. (laughs) You've worked in, you know, you've worked in the aftermath of societies that have gone through that in terms of Kosovo, I think, was one of the places you were. I've been in the Balkans, but not going to Kosovo. We did what we call Bosnia-Herzegovina, Serbia, and, um, of course, Croatia, that area, Republika Srpska. Were you able to get any sort of feel for what what was it that was the turning point or the path they went down that brought them to such a dark place? Well, the Balkans, I mean, if you remember the history, the you, know, you go back to World War One and, and, and the Dalmatia coast, the Croatian coast is beautiful. The, the people in that region are nice. And we have separate countries under the Austria-Hungarian Empire, and then, of course, World War II comes along, and then with the battle between you know the, the U.S. and the Russians, and Tito, Marshal Tito, coming in and saying, now we're going to have just Yugoslavia. We're going to create a country, and we're going to create a country that's based on always looking forward and never remembering the past. And because of his personality and the control he exerted, that survived. But you know, within years of his death, the past came up. So you had the nationalists for uh, Srpska and the nationalists for Bosnia-Herzegovina and came up and said, no, we're going to have our own country. And then we started down to the industrialized, what I call industrialized killing, the mass graves. Now, one of the things I think has made it better this time is the International Commission Missing Persons, an organization we helped start back in 1999 or 1998, when I say we, Kenyan, by staffing it, is that we're going to do the mass graves. Now, now Kenyan 
was out, you know, our goal was to help start it and then make it locally sustainable, make it grow from within because it has to be from within. But I can remember in 99 when I went around to talk to the leaders of each of the countries and the people about setting up this commission because you, you, you couldn't do it in one country. You had to do it all three, and all three had to be done equally. I'd sit to have everyone starts with tea. And the first thing people would tell me is how they were the victim. I never met anyone that was guilty. I only ever met victims yet. I saw lots of bodies and lots of graves. And so the decline, I think, is, is such a, is the refusal to understand the past and how things are organized aren't going to go away just because you drew a line on a map or because you wanted it to be that way. You know, the Middle East still suffers today from the um, Sykes-Picot Agreement at the end of World War One that, that basically divided the Middle East by somebody with a map, yeah. not understanding the, the clans or the cultures or the, the history. And we still suffer from that today. It's, it's, you know, it doesn't go away. It's interesting to me how much symbolism we have wrapped up in the expressions related to the dead, burying the dead and digging up the dead. They both have literal meanings and then also very symbolic meanings. They can actually mean both both remembering and commemorating, that is, burying the dead. And it also can be uh, symbolic of, of forgetting them, throwing them in a, you know, in a grave and, and putting dirt over it and forgetting about it. But we definitely have ways in which our, our language has been interwoven with the deeper symbolic meanings related to the acts of, of how we treat the dead. Well, what's more important, life than life and death? It's why live if you're not going to live? And we will all die, but most don't want to. You've chosen to not die doing your job. It certainly was a, a risk given what you've talked about in the book, and I definitely recommend people go and, and check it out uh, as, as soon as it's out, which should be a couple days uh, after you're hearing this. And um, and now you're walking away from uh, this. You've sold the company, is that right? Yes, my husband and I, it was a company I joined in 98 after doing kind of the same thing in the Army, did Oklahoma City and, and Haiti and the Balkans as, as, as military duties. I joined Kenyon in 98, um, became CEO in 2000. Three um, liked the company so much. You know, the old Gillette Razor commercial bought it in 2007, and now my husband and I made the decision this year to sell the company. Um, you reach a point where you know it's time. It's time for the next generation of leaders to come on and take this to the next level to build. It's not good to be in one place forever and ever. I'm, I was there for 23 years, which is unusual for CEOs or. or it's a long time, yeah, yeah and especially, I imagine, in a job like that that's as intense and demanding as it, it is. It becomes all-encompassing because you, I, in 2001, I just gotten home from New York, and I I'd left on the 11th to Pennsylvania, or to the Pentagon, and then moved there to Pennsylvania, and then from there to New York, and just gotten home, and uh, like two days later, we had Italy's worst air disaster. Um, it crashed. It killed 100 uh, 18 people and so I, I, mean, I left and went to so I was hardly home that year and then 18 months in New York in 2004 I, you know I sat home with Christmas and then the, the Boxing Day tsunami or the, the Christmas Day in the U.S. was the next day in, in Thailand and in Asia when that tsunami hit we had Hurricane Katrina that year. We had a couple really bad plane crashes. So you're just never home. So the minute you get home, you're really not home because you got to make sure all your stuff's clean, ready to go again, um, because you don't know when you're going to have to go again. And when you're the boss, you really don't have the opportunity to say no. So it becomes all impacting for for you and your family. Um, so yes, we we have sold the company and and have some significantly different plans now so are you are you able to say what those are you you're retired but but doing other things well one thing is i hate to see people learn the lessons that have already been learned because they're painful they're painful for the person learning them and they're painful for the families 
there's a lot of information that isn't new. It's just new to the people going through it for the first time. So writing the book was a way to say, here's some things you may want to think about, good, bad, and different. Here's some consideration. So if you're the person in charge of the next earthquake or the next tsunami or the next bombing, because they're going to happen. That's the unfortunate reality of the world we live in. Here's the things you might want to consider to think about. I have you know, my, my website where I post a, I call it a blog, but I talk about here's some things you may want to think about. I've done op-eds, and I, I think the, um, that's a goal. So that's a partial goal, not a... Is sharing, sharing your experiences through writing and other means here? Yeah. It's not, not a business. It's just something to, to share. And then um, being able to do the things that my husband and I want to do that we, we couldn't do. I've been to, what, almost 100 countries, but almost always for work. I'd like to start going back and doing those for photography. I love to be in the water. I love to be on the water. I love to, I've got great camera sets and now I want to actually put them to use. So I just bought a brand new BMW 1250. Oh, nice. R1250 GSA. So yeah. I, I've got some trips I'd like to take that on is, that. Uh, that is an enduro style bike, right? One of those that you take from Perry to Dakar. Yeah, yeah I want to, um, I want to rig it out. And, mm -hmm. um, and I want to go up and to the you know the fire roads and the mountains and um, you know there's some old great books travels with Jupiter and you know the Ewan McGregor and um, oh God now he's gonna get mad because I can't remember his lesser known friend Charlie um, oh they, they they've done he's written across Africa he's done this is um, not Jim Rogers who you're thinking of is it because he did a lot of that kind of adventure financial travel yeah no this uh, was driving. Ewan McGregor the actor and Charlie oh that's uh, his uh, back, I, one of his friends in the UK so they they ride they do crazy rides yeah so doing crazy stuff is the plan <laughs> well I shouldn't have said crazy stuff because my husband's in the room and <laughs> When I had my bike in Houston, he had parameters on where I could ride in. It was just a simple triumph. <laughs> I did start with a ninja, but I moved away from that. <laughs> right on. Well, thank you so much for coming out in person here in uh, Key West to be on the show. Very much appreciate it. You're welcome. <laughs>